Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy, folks. You know, one of the wonderful things about doing a podcast is that I can pretty much do whatever I want to with the podcast. And I certainly have demonstrated a wide variety of topics often straying far away from the ostensible topic of bluegrass music. And I hope you have enjoyed it over these um, many episodes, 200 and something. I know, you know, the numbers and the bonus episodes, you know the deal. But it's, 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 um, it reminded me that all creative endeavors, of which podcasting is one, clearly, as is performing, songwriting, wood carving, you know, I, I, I don't even know where you end this uh, concept of what is creative and what is not, but I'm, I'm a big believer in creative output. And uh, anyway, the good thing about such an endeavor is that it doesn't really matter whether people like it or not as long as you're happy with what you did. And I think all bluegrass musicians have that belief down deep in their soul because not everybody likes bluegrass and every bluegrass musician knows that. Anyway, uh, I'm going to use this episode to do uh, two things. The first thing is just to catch you up to date on some of what's been going on in my uh, little world here. <clears throat> so that you can compare it to yours and, and so on. Or just think about it, just, you know, a little entertainment part. And then I want to uh, present to you um, a, a suggestion for how you might approach um, music lessons. And I refer to this as the Ed Davis method. Uh, my, it's named after my good friend, Mr. Ed Davis who one of these days I'm going to get him on the show and interview him. Fascinating guy. I'm not even going to tell you much about him at this point. We'll save that for that episode. Um, anyway, so we're going to come to that, the Ed Davis method. And then maybe when I get him on, he can tell me how, you know, completely full of it I am and how I completely misread his, his methodology. But anyway, let's, uh, let's roll through a bunch of things. <clears throat> First item on the list is that, now we, we know, you know, especially your part-time bands and your semi-professional bands and even the pros have not had a lot of gigs over the last couple of years. So when a gig happens, it's a pretty monumental thing. It's like, whoa, you have a gig? Wow, that's great. And well, anyway, had a gig last week and it was the second gig of 2021. Now, remember, I'm, I spent 40 years doing, oh, at minimum 50 rehearsals a year. And if I was in two bands, it might be a hundred rehearsals and then a similar number of gigs. I mean, I've had... I've had weeks where I had four gigs in one week, you know. 
which is a lot for a local part-timer who's trying to maintain a day job and keep a business going and have a family and, you know, that's a lot. So I was just always on the go, 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 go. And, uh, just here lately, the last couple of years, not been much happening. And, you know, I'm not sitting here whining and griping, but I just want to <clears throat> tell you a little bit about the reality of such a thing and give you some specific tips. I learned something very valuable, uh, doing this gig. So let me tell you about this gig. Um, last spring, um, I got a call from a local church in Americus and they said, we're having our spring festival, you know, uh, we would like you to play, you, you know, bring your bluegrass band. <clears throat> and by the way, what do you call your bluegrass band? And I said, well, it's Pony Express, even though Pony Express has not really existed as a band for the last gosh, almost seven or eight years. But it is the band that I started in 1979. And then that was Pony Express 1. Then in 81, it reformed, became Pony Express 2. Then there was Pony Express 3, which came out in the late 90s, uh, up until about 2010. And then it kind of went on hiatus again. And then everything went on hiatus. So when the guy called me from the church, he's like the music guy at the, you know, First Methodist Church. Nice guy, Sam. And thank you, Sam, for the gig. We appreciate you. So last spring we did a gig and it was sort of a, we play for, you know, do a set. And then, you know, it was almost like a talent show from the church. So I wondered if maybe he called us just because he needed extra PA equipment and more mics and mic stands. I, I don't know, because there were times we had like 10 microphones set up on that stage. I was even over there turning the pages for the pianist when she played. He's like, could you go over there and like, when she nods, turn the page. It reminded me of that Victor Borga. Um, you know, you got, go watch Victor Borga. I've mentioned him before. And his son, in air quotes. Well, well his assistant. <laughs> anyway, it's funny. I was turning pages and uh, doing all kinds of stuff. That was last spring. It was a great thing. It was kind of a... You know, <clears throat> re it was invigorating to see people out, actually out doing things, kids playing in the yard, you know, getting the barbecue, you know, you know the deal. Just a basic little gig, and I pulled together the musicians who were available, and one of them, me, well, two of two of us were from the old Pony Express, uh, me and David Ellis. And then I've got this banjo player that I've discovered up in Harris County, Georgia, which is one county north of Columbus. Uh, I call him the kid. <laughs> you know, anybody under 25 is a kid to me. Um, anyway, Jeff Snyder, wonderful banjo player, just super clean, really into it. And, uh, but green, you know, he's, he's, he's still learning the ropes and, but he's really good. I wouldn't have called him if he wasn't good. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I like to play with people that, you know, can play. Even if they don't know everything. But, you know, they have the potential. And so anyway, and I also called my buddy Steve Strobridge to play guitar. And uh, so that was last spring. So the guy calls me up again <clears throat> all summer long. No gigs, no nothing. Well, we had jams. You know, I've been holding 
my barn jams throughout the summer and uh, having a good time of that and doing the little Tuesday night thing down at Pat's place. And I know you're getting bored, you know, Hey, there's always that stop button. You know, you can go listen to Joe Rogan or something. If you don't like this, I don't really, you know, I don't really care at this point because those who do like it, Hey, I'm here for you. And if you don't see ya, bye. It don't bother me because it doesn't affect me one way or the other. Um, anyway, so he calls me up and he's like, Hey, we're doing our fall festival. You know, could you get Pony Express down here again? So yeah, first guy I call, man, I can't do it. Oh, bummer. Second guy I call, man, I'd like to, but I just can't do it. I'm, I'm busy on that day, you know? All right. So I'm working through my phone list and I called David Ellis. Go back and listen to the David Ellis interview he's the first guy i interviewed sort of just like as a test interview to see was i even capable of doing an interview how would this go you know david ellis my old friend and bandmate both in pony express and uh cedar hill i called him up i, I just knew he's gonna say no man i can't i got three gigs that day or something you know he's like yeah i can do it i was like okay um i'll put you on mandolin because he plays everything. He's like, okay, cool. I'll be there. So I had David Ellis and I played bass. I called Steve again on guitar and I called Jeff, the kid <laughs> on banjo. So we got a band. Well, then a couple of days later, I got a call from Mike Estes, who was our fiddle player in Pony Express. He said, I heard you have a gig down there. I said, yeah, but you know, I only got so much money and I've already told everybody what they're getting. I don't have any more money. I can't really get any more people. Uh, but you know, if, if you, if you want to come down, I'll put out the tip bucket and, you know, maybe and talk to guys and stuff. But I, I just, you know, there's like, you know, the money we're getting paid for this gig is the same money we would have gotten in 1978. Everything else has gone up, but not like how much you pay your musicians, you know, so, and he gets it. He gets it. He said, well, I'm going to try to come. So that was Mike Estes, fiddle player. Great fiddle player, played with Pony Express and did his first gigs with Pony Express in 1980. And he just gets better all the time, just better and better and better and better. And Mike and I are old friends. Anyway, Mike said he's coming. So I fixed him up a place out here in the little cabin that I have behind the barn, you know, with the, uh, got the window unit in the summer and you got the little space heater in the winter and an air bed, you know, it's like your own personal little, um, man cave. So if somebody wants to come visit, you know, I can do that. And my wife doesn't make me clean the whole house, you know, <laughs> anyway, so the gig came around and, uh, that was, um, I don't know, about 10 days ago. So I've got to dig out the PA. I'm like, oh man, I do. I really want to bring all this stuff over there for this amount of money. So I decided I would do just a very minimal PA setup. So I'm going to describe to you the PA and a couple little problems I had with it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got two systems. I've got the big one where every instrument and vocal is mic'd independently got the big 12 channel mixer amps compressors monitors you know lights the whole works you know 
And I just didn't want to drag all that stuff over there. Because first of all, it won't fit all, it will not all fit in my car and get the bass fiddle in. And I didn't want to make two trips. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so anyway, I decided we're going the bare bones, the old incorrigible string band setup where I carry an amp, main speakers, three mics. That's it. And then I got the, well, I'll just put a couple of monitors in there too. Squeeze them in somewhere in that Ford Fiesta. And the way uh, for you um, PA people who want to understand how I did this, I've done this many, many times in just little small setups. What I do is I put one central vocal mic, a big condenser, uh, you know, side address condenser. Um, I was using one of those Russian mics. I forget what, what the number on it is. So I, I stick that about chin high. Now you could do the whole gig with nothing but that. But what I tend to do is put the bass direct into a channel. So you get the one central mic and you got a little bass. And then what I do is I put side mics. So this is very old school. I took two AKG C1000S's and I stuck them to the side and just pointed them out just slightly. So that as the, if the guitar player is singing lead, he can just be on that vocal mic. It'll pick up his guitar and everybody else has got to back up a little bit to make room for him. And basically, if it's your break, get in there. Get in there on one of those two mics, stick it in that instrument and play. That's the way it works. It's a self-mixing method. You know, it's a thing that a lot of people are trying to do these days, what they call the one mic. I mean, this is... What we were doing was very similar to what you would see if you went to see Del McCurry play. You know, a minimal number of mics and the bass running direct. So that's what we did. And then I decided to run monitor. So the way I do it, everything goes in the little 12-channel Mackie mixer. Three mics going in and the bass going into that little mixer. So there's only four inputs. And then coming out, of, and I pan everything hard left. So coming out of the left side of the mixer, I go to the left side of a big amp. I got 1100 watt amp, an acoustic amp. Weighs a ton, it's a boat anchor. But it's big, heavy, super reliable. So I plug the left output of the board, so we're mono, into the left side of the amp, and out of the left side of the amp, I go to the mains. So there you got a PA. In, amplify, out. But to get the monitors, what I do is I come off aux send one. So I put a little jumper between aux send one from the mixer to the right channel of the power amp. And then, so I'm really using the, the stereo power amp as two separate amps. You know, left is doing the mains, right is doing the monitors. And I come out of that mixer, aux end one, to the input of the amp, and then come out of the right channel of the amp to two floor monitors. Some old OAPs that I have. Original vintage Cedar Hill equipment. Still has the Cedar Hill Atlanta, Georgia stenciling on the speakers. They're great. They've, they've been dragged to literally 2,000 gigs and have never failed. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. 
there are musicians who have gone to 2,000 gigs who have failed, you know, but these speakers, they just keep on going. And they're, they're old, and they're heavy, and they're plywood, and they're great. So park those on the floor and just jumper between them so that you're getting two speakers on one output. That's the setup. That's all we did. And arrived, set everything up. Took 10 minutes to set everything up. And all the guys are getting there tuning up. And I said, go over there and write a set list. We didn't even have a set list. We didn't even have a song list. So while I'm setting up the PA, I just told the rest of the guys, which was David, Mike, Steve, and uh, Jeff, go over there. Here's, here's a clipboard and a pen and paper. Write a set. So they did. I don't even need to know what it is. Just get up there, tell me what you're playing, and let's play. And that's, that's the way we did the gig. It was great. Man, we were cooking. We were cooking with gas. With David Ellis on that mandolin and me on the bass, me and David just read each other. So we were just driving a bus and Jeff over there wailing away on the banjo. But I had a little problem. So I want to describe this problem and uh, tell you to be on the lookout for it, especially if you've been doing this a while. If you just accumulated your PA gear and microphones a year ago, you will not have this problem. But if you're like me and you're still using equipment that maybe you acquired in the 80s or the 90s or the early 2000s, be on the lookout for this. Because here's what happened. When we got there, I decided, you know what? The banjo player is pretty much over there. He's not singing, so I'm just going to set him up his own mic over there. So I ended up with four microphones. And I set up an A-Static condenser mic, which I've used on banjo players for years and years and years and years. I don't even know how many gigs. Good sounding mic for a banjo. Just put it on a straight stand, stuck it right in front of him. I said, when you take your breaks, get in there and practically touch the head. And, you know, when you're backing up, back up. And, you know, checked it out. It's working. But we get to play in, and by song three, I'm very disappointed in the way that banjo is sounding. And I saw a buddy of mine, Ashley. Ashley was wandering around there, and he'd been coming out to the jams and stuff. I said, hey, Ashley, come up here and play this bass. So he jumped up there and took over on bass so I could walk out and listen. And I'm wandering around out there between the bounce houses and the popcorn popper and you know, it's like kids running around and I'm listening and I'm like that banjo sounds like crap so I switched his microphone as soon as they finished that song I grabbed a different microphone a little Behringer condenser mic I think it's called a C40 but don't quote me on that I had a couple of them in there just they were spares I stuck that microphone on there and they started again, and man, what a difference. Suddenly, this banjo sounded great. So now let me explain what was wrong. The banjo just didn't have any volume, and it was, if I turned it up enough to get him loud enough, it just start feeding back. Like something is bad wrong. Well, I just threw that mic in the case and uh, investigated it the following day. And here's what I found. And 
pay attention, you mic geeks. Okay, this is a, it's a typical looking mic. It looks like an SM58, but it's actually a condenser. So it's basically a, you know, a a barrel with a ball screwed onto the end of it, a screen ball, and the element is inside that ball, and the cord plugs in the the far end. Very typical looking microphone. Now. You microphone people know that there are things called windscreens or pop filters. You know, it's a foam ball that goes on the outside of the mic. And you buy them in packs of 10 and you stick them over the microphone. And it helps cut down on wind, wind noise and also like plosions from you popping the, the especially the consonant P. I probably just did it on this thing. Those outer foam balls really cut down that, that, that attack of an airstream hitting, you know, really overdriving the uh, diaphragm. So that's the foam ball. Well, over the years, those foam balls go away and fall off and get destroyed and lost and so on. So I didn't have any of those with me for this gig. And on a banjo, you're, the banjo is not producing wind like a vocalist will. I like them on vocal mics. I did have one on the main vocal mic. That was the only one I brought with me. But see, you think, well, you don't have the foam ball, so there's no wind protection. But here's what you need to know. Almost every microphone, now there are some exceptions, but almost every microphone of that type of configuration, which is just a a little straight barrel with a screw-on ball on the end of it. Almost all of those have an internal foam windscreen inside the ball. If you take something like a 58 or something and you unscrew the ball from the barrel and you look down inside the ball, it's lined with foam. There's a foam insert inside the ball. So they do have wind protection inside them. And this A-static microphone that I was using had that, as almost all of those microphones do. You can put additional foam on the outside, but there is a foam insert inside between the screen and the, the uh, element or the diaphragm, whatever kind of mic it is. And this is true for dynamics and those small condensers. Almost all of them have this internal foam piece. So I, the next day, I unscrew the thing and separate the ball from the, the rest of the microphone and foam, little balls of gooky, cruddy, gray blobs of crap started just, I was just shaking it out. And I put my finger inside that ball and felt around. It felt like, almost like, old dried up cotton candy or something. It didn't feel like foam rubber anymore. It felt like goop. And what I'm telling you is that foam disintegrated over time. And it, I'm sure it's because of, well, everything made of plastic eventually breaks. Everybody knows that. Well, foam is a form of plastic. I don't know what happens, whether it, you know, chemically reacts with the oxygen in the environment or whether it's temperature but just let's just say age destroys foam so 
a microphone that sounded good two years ago may suddenly start sounding like like you've put a mitten over the microphone because that's what that mic sounded like. So with my little finger, I dug all that foam out rotted, decroted foam from the inside of that ball and blew it out with an air hose until I just had nothing but a screen. Put it back together, tested it, sounded great. Now, either I need to get a new internal foam piece to fit inside that ball, or I just need to habitually put the outer foam ball on. All I'm telling you is, once in a while, especially if your mics are getting old, unscrew that thing and look at that foam. That internal foam could have broken down and all of what used to be passages for air and sound waves has just gotten all clogged up and credited up. I'm just saying... If you got a bad sound of mic and it's old, that could be the cause. Okay, enough about that. Uh, second thing is cold weather has come around. I detected the first frost this morning. The temperature was only 37 on my thermometer in the barn, but I had frost on the cars and a little bit of light frost here and there in the grass. So, uh, you know, you can't just go by the... Uh, temperature on the thermometer you got to look at reality you know frost is frost and i suppose the cars frost up because they're giant heat sinks you know and they kind of suck the heat away and so the windshield gets frost on it anyway we're getting really close to our first frost i wouldn't even call this our first frost but anyway due to that i put the barn jams on hold until next spring and uh actually the guy i mentioned to mentioned before Ashley Gooden I don't I've always wanted to ask him if he's related to Sally anyway Ashley Gooden he has uh, volunteered next week to have the uh the Thursday open jam over at his shop so we're gonna we're gonna move it indoors for the winter all right uh and don't worry I'm getting around to the Ed Davis method you know and again if you have any complaints about the podcast um you know Write yourself an email, because I don't want to read it. Um, or start your own podcast, you know? <laughs> anyway, I, I, I'm just almost over this thing, you know what I'm saying? You know, there's a, there comes a time, you know, where I don't, I don't know how close I am to that time. but uh, um, and, I, and I do feel like the podcast is, is, is um, therapeutic for me, you know? So that's uh, about, at this point, about 90% of why I do it. So I will get to the Ed Davis method. It's a valuable tip for anyone learning to play. I'll get to that in a minute. But I want to talk about something else first. Because, as I've said, it's my podcast and I'll talk about what I want to. You know my son, Jackson. Go back and listen, re-listen to the VIP interview. And, of course, he's a very musical kid because the house is just full of this stuff, you know. Music software, instruments cluttering up the house. You can't even walk through a house without tripping over a bass fiddle or a dobro or a tenor banjo case. And there's the top of the piano is covered in harmonicas and fifes. And you know what I'm saying? The house is just full of musical stuff. And this is where he randomly was hatched. He was just in this house with this crazy music guy, you know? And uh, so, you know, some kids are playing with Legos, and he did that too. Um, and other kids are like 
fooling around with the auto harp, you know, <laughs> once. Or, you know, go ask your average uh, kindergartner if they know what a dulcimer is. And probably not, you know what I mean? But he did, you know. Anyway, he never really took to the bluegrass thing, and he got really into piano and composing and uh, electronic music composition and so on. But, all right, just I'll keep it short. My proud papa moment, my son Jackson, his, his school teacher, his piano teacher, electronic music teacher at the school where he goes, the Rainey McCullough School of the Arts, Columbus, Georgia, suggested to Jackson that he enter a competition, a composing competition. And he did that last year. And he got honorable mention, which I think means you're basically in the top three nationwide. Because I think they basically just give out the winner and a couple of honorable mentions. He won that last year. And that was great, you know, but honorable mention. And it's like getting fourth place in the Search of the South contest at South Lake Mall, which Pony Express got fourth place in, in 1980, I think. You know, that cheap plastic trophy handed to me by Bill Anderson, Whispering Mill, it was there to present the awards. You know, 150, 200 people sent in tapes, and then they picked eight finalists, and then the eight finalists played two per weekend at the mall all during the month of August of 1980 at South Lake Mall, right there in between the Radio Shack and the J.C. Penney's. And, uh, and then they pick four finalists in Pony Express. The bluegrass band Pony Express was one of the four finalists. We could win. This It's possible. And so we're one of the four finalists when we play on uh, the final day. All four of the finalists play. And, of course, we got fourth place out of four. <laughs> we, you know, and I got my cheap plastic trophy to prove it. So I'm, I'm not big on contests, but, you know, his teacher said, hey, why don't you, you know, submit something again this year? You got honorable mention last year, you know, you should submit a piece or two. So he did, and they sent the application forms and, you know, the, uh, I guess in this case, in the classical, they send the actual score and perhaps an audio of it if you you know, most of these music notation software programs will output an audio file, you know, let the computer play it. And the, some of it is very impressive, by the way, if you have good plugins and so on. And in the electronic music, you know, you're using samples and all this stuff. Don't, don't ask me how he does it or how anybody does that stuff. But it's some pretty cool sounding stuff. So he submitted his song and it was a... It was a composition called Runaway, and it was in the electronic music category. Nationwide, students throughout the United States of America. And this contest was, um, or competition, was uh, by the National Association for Music Education. Uh, He sent in a tune called Runaway. Let's just hear a little of it. I'm just going to play a little bit of it. Here's a little bit of of Jackson's Runaway.
Okay, so that's what he sounds like. I'll tell you in a minute how you can hear the whole thing. And some of you may have already heard the whole thing. I might have even played it on a show. I don't think I did, but... Anyway, he was just notified that he won first place from the National Association for Music Education organization. First place in the electronic music composition. And they're going to send him a check for 500 bucks. You know, when you're 13, 500 bucks is a lot. And he's beginning to, he's been looking at various, it's all music stuff. He, he's thinking about ordering this volume of Haydn pieces. And, you know, he's very careful. Like, that one's $24 in shipping, you know. He was being very careful about how he's going to uh, blow his massive winnings. But I'm just so proud of him. It's like a major award. It reminds me of the... When my wife told me about this, um, I was thinking of that that movie, The Christmas Story, where he won a major award. And I wanted to get a big wooden crate and get one of those leg lamps <laughs> and stick it in there with all the Excelsior and have it delivered to the house since Jackson had won a major award. <laughs> anyway, I'm just really proud of him. You know... It doesn't bother me that he's just not all that into bluegrass. You'd be surprised how knowledgeable about it he is, though, because of just, you know, absorption, because that's my thing, you know. But he, he's an amazing, uh, amazing kid. Anyway, I just want to read this. I, I then got an email. I'm just going to read a bit of it. I may jump around a bit. I just want to, look, allow me this. If you don't want to hear this, just fast forward, you know. Dear Mr. Brown, now Mr. Brown is Sam Brown, Jackson's piano instructor and the instructor of, in his electronic music class. Dear Mr. Brown, as an NAF enemy member, I just received an email with the winners of the electronic music composition competition. Your student, Jackson Laird, won with the composition Runaway. Please let your student know how very impressed I was with this work. I've composed and arranged many songs throughout my 35-year career as a music teacher. For a student in this age group to have such a creative and well-composed work is truly amazing. I listened to it a second time and I liked it even more. The motif in the A section was well executed. And when you listen to it, you tell me if you agree. Not overdone. In fact, I found myself humming it during the B section, and harmonically, it works. That is a sign of a very good motif. It grabs the listener, and they start humming, singing along. You should both be very proud of this musical achievement. Of all the winning compositions and runners-up this year, Runaway, in my opinion, was the best one. A close second was the collegiate-level runner-up Boolean input that was harmonically a very 20th century work. Well executed. Jackson should listen to it. The harmonic progressions in Runaway, the use of electronic instrument choices and overall flow of the work, shows a mature and serious approach to creating music. How many of us can say that about ourselves and our bluegrass picking? Does anybody come up to you and tell you something like that? Maybe we should try a little harder. You know, that's what I'm saying. And the person, I'm not going to mention the person's name who sent it because I didn't get their permission. Anyone can write notes and create electronic backups. 
Hey, which reminds me of a joke. I'm going to digress. Uh, I heard this the other day. Did you did you hear about the farmer? The farmer who decided that he was just failing at farming and he decided to become a musician. Because he had a bunch of sick beats. Anyway, back to the letter. It takes skill to create real music, music that makes people stop and immerse themselves into the work. And that is what Jackson did. Best wishes to Jackson as a composer. Definitely off to a great start. That little advice, I mean, we should strive, all of us should strive for those things. Create real music, music that makes people stop and immerse themselves in the work. I don't care if you're playing old Joe Clark, singing sitting on top of the world for the 10,000th time, or writing your own electronic music composition. This is the goal, and this person understands that. And I'm just so proud of Jackson. So let me tell you, if you would like to listen to the whole thing and a bunch more, um, Jackson doesn't have a, you know, being a miner, he can't like set up PayPal accounts and, you know, this kind of stuff to sell his music. So when he has created a bunch of stuff, he'll put a, a group of tracks together as an EP and I'll just upload it to my store. So all you got to do if you want to hear this thing is go to my PayHip store, payhip.com slash Bradley Laird, and scroll down and look for, he's got two different EPs. One of them uh, contains this song, Runaway, and they're free. You just basically, if you want it, he would love for you to just download it. They're, they're free. It's it's you. The price is set at zero, and you can chip in a little something if you want to, but basically it's like this. Imagine... You're a bluegrass band back in the 80s and you got a bunch of cassette tapes, you know, and nobody's buying the cassette. Well, maybe eight tracks. And you just make an announcement from the stage that if anybody wants a free eight track of Cedar Hill, come to the table. I'm, we're just giving them away. You know, people will line up and just get them for free. But some people might want to chunk a fiver into the tip bucket. You know what I'm saying? And that's the way this works. So you go to payhip.com slash Bradley Laird, slide down, and I believe Runaway is on his EP entitled Beacon. So look for Beacon. There are two of them. Get them both. He's got two EPs on there. You can list a bunch of other stuff that he's done. It's just great music. It has nothing to do with bluegrass, but other than the fact that bluegrass is music, and so is this. And, you know, you might learn a little something from it. That's all I'm saying. So you just uh, leave the price set at zero, type in your email, submit it, and bingo, you can hit download and download the whole flipping thing, you know, the audio tracks. And if you want to chunk him a buck or two, you know, you can do that too. And uh, I'll hand that over to him. So that's, that's my proud papa thing. And for all of you that do not have children, I don't know what's wrong with you. Okay. I'll discuss that further in my other podcast, which I keep threatening to start. Because sometimes I feel like I'm running out of steam on the bluegrass thing. Like, I pretty much told you everything I know, you know. Because there's so much I don't know. And i just telling goofy stories and telling you about my mushroom farm and, you know, the donkeys. I'm like, okay, when is enough enough? I don't know. But I've got these other 
you know, 10,000 hours of stuff I could wrap on. I, you know, may just actually do that. All right. So let's get to the Ed Davis method. Um, and this is good advice. My friend, Ed Davis, band director for many years, um, very, um, interwoven into music education. By the way, he had nothing whatsoever to do with that contest. I told him about it and he was like, man, that's great. I didn't, you know, it didn't like, I got my old bass player from, from Pony Express to like put in a good word, you know, that didn't happen. Um, anyway, Ed plays everything. As a band director, you have to play everything. You, you gotta, you know, be able to teach them kids the cornet or the saxophone or the oboe or the timpani. You gotta know a little bit about everything to be a band director. And so Ed plays a little bit of everything, but his, his recreational music is bluegrass banjo and he also plays upright bass and uh he was the bass player in pony express and i've jammed with him i don't even know the number of times i've jammed with him where he may be on bass or he may be on banjo seems to me like he's got an rb800 don't quote me on that i may have that wrong but i believe that's what he plays anyway in 1983-ish, I was teaching banjo lessons in Jonesboro, Georgia. And I already knew Ed, and he played, and I played. We both knew each other. Well, he calls me up one day. He's like, I'd like to take a lesson from you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I go over to Ed's house, and I did a banjo lesson. And I think maybe the following week we did another one, maybe maybe three lessons. And uh, you know, Ed's Ed's playing as good as me. I didn't really understand why he was taking a lesson from me, but he did. And we got to talking. Well, we talked all the time, but he said, "Yeah, you know, I took a couple of lessons from David Ellis, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast." And. Uh, I took a couple lessons from uh, Jimmy Adkins. I took a couple lessons from Jeff Holall. I took a, you know, and I'm like, this guy's on to something. So basically at that time period, you would classify Ed at that time period as an intermediate to slash advanced player, you know? Like, he's at that time, he wasn't like the greatest banjo player in the world, but he's trying to figure it all out. And he came up with a, a great system. And here are the rules. Here's the, what I call the Ed Davis method. Number one, you learn the basics on your own. So, you know, which was pretty easy for him because he had a big musical background, you know. He understood an eighth note and a triplet. You know what I'm saying. It, very, it was easier for him. So he sits down and he teaches himself the basics of playing the banjo from books. You know, and listen to records and things like that. Step two, locate all of the better players in your area. And step three, take three or four lessons from each one. And I would say, even if they don't normally teach lessons, ask them if they would teach you a lesson. So here you are. You're trying to learn to play the mantle or something. Identify all of the mandolin players that you can find that you could potentially go sit down for an hour or two with and con them, talk them into, bribe them into giving you a lesson or two and soak it up. 
So that's step three. Take three or four lessons from each one of these people. Four, absorb what you learn from each person and keep practicing. That's, a, that's an interesting way to um, self-directed learning. And you get varied opinions. These are the benefits. You, you're going to get varied opinions of, like, one guy may think it's really important that you concentrate on your right-hand roles. And, and uh, another might be that, you know, another person may have these ideas about the way you're fingering things or the rhythm of your, your you know what I'm saying? Everybody's got different things that they'll see about your playing and they'll try to help you in their way. And so you take in all these varied opinions and you find what works for you. It's smart. It's smart as opposed to taking lessons from one person, let's say, for three years. The, you just get a lot more variable input. So you got to be an intelligent student to do that. You know, if you just want to learn to pick exactly like Jimmy Adkins, just go take lessons from Jimmy Adkins for, you know, three years and hang out and jam with him, go see him perform and just, you know, become Jimmy Adkins version two. You can do that. There are people who do that, you know, just get completely eaten up with Ralph Stanley or playing like Don Reno. And that's just their one goal in life. This is fine. Alan Mundy, you know, whatever, Earl. That's all cool. That's cool. If whatever you want to do, I say you should do it. I do believe in freedom. Unlike a lot of people in this world. Anyway, that's the Ed Davis method. I would just suggest that you do that. Find anybody who can play as good as you, or perhaps a little better, and say, I want to I want to get together. Let's sit down. Show me how you do that. How you do this. How you do that. What do you think about that? You know? I still, while I'm not teaching regularly now, I still have people that do that similar thing. And I would encourage them to do, um, to don't just limit it to one person. There isn't one person that's going to explain the whole mystery of the musical universe to you. There's a lot of different people and they all have something to offer. Now I do, let me say this on the other side, there is something about sticking with the process with somebody long enough to get some actual benefit out of it, especially in the earlier stages. You know, if you're jumping from teacher to teacher and you're a beginner, I, I don't recommend that. Stick with somebody long enough so you've got a good basic understanding of the basics of playing your instrument and of music. You know, that's going to take longer in the early stages. It may take a year of lessons, you know, beginning banjo lessons or beginning fiddle lessons or whatever. In the early stages, it takes longer to get all that in. And, you know, be sure you have a quality teacher who... who not only can play, but can explain how to play. There are a lot of great players who I don't think are that good of teachers. And I think there are some really good teachers who maybe not aren't that great of players. But, you know, they're better at explaining it. And you, you need a teacher who is very observant and analytical about what you're doing. And who's um, a good enough, um, I almost want to say friend, that can instruct you without making you want to just go home and throw it away and quit, you know, 
somebody who didn't beat you up and berate you for your lousy playing and stuff. You know, somebody who's encouraging, but yet firm about certain things. Like I had a mandolin player come over here the other day, and he's playing this little tune. You know, we're just working on the A part of Fork a Deer, and uh, get to like measure seven of the A part. And he's using his pinky for a six fret note. And I said, hey, stop. Use your ring. Use your ring finger for that note. Oh, what I, you know, I was trying to, you know, uh, build up my use of the pinky. I said, that's fine, except don't do it here because that isn't the standard first position way of playing a six fret note in first position. Use your ring finger. And I showed and I demonstrated the two ways. I said, there are plenty of other activities you can use for your little finger. So let me show you some other stuff and got him on a few other things to give the little finger its proper workout. You need an observant teacher who understands and can explain it and give a good logical reason for why it should be done this way. Because if you just keep doing it that other way, you may get really good at that. But then what are you going to do when you got a seventh fret note? And your pinky is stuck down there on the sixth fret. You don't have an extra, you don't have pinky number two, you know, and your ring finger can't jump over the pinky to play that higher note. You know, I'm just saying, you know, take the advice of 10,000 mandolin players who have come before you. There is something to the basic standard technique, you know, like, you know, I've told people, if you want to hold the pick with your toes and play it that way, you know, you're more than welcome to, but. You know, the majority of mandolin players over the years have found that if they hold it, hold the pick in their right hand, it, it's, you know, it's easier to play, you know. So anyway, take uh, the Ed Davis method. Learn the basics on your own. Locate all the better players in your area. Take three or four lessons from each one. And there's an extra benefit to this. Is that you're an up-and-coming musician well, you're getting to know the better musicians on a personal level. And that plugs you into the scene. So when Ed took lessons from me, that got him access to all the stuff and the people that I know and, you know, the gigs. And, and I, it's like the kid Jeff playing banjo with me at that gig just recently. Well... He's now met the other guys and played with them. So when they have a gig or they're thinking about putting together a band or doing a recording or whatever, they know him. You know, it's a networking thing, too. So by taking lessons from if you lived in a place like Atlanta or something, you could take and let's say you're a mantle player, you could find 15 mandolin players easily who are better than you and take a couple lessons from each one. Now you know them and they may invite you, you know, it, it could be as silly as, Hey, you know, can you play the bass? Well, you know, no, not really. But this guy who you're taking lessons from thinks you could, and he needs a bass player. And so he gives you the five minute bass lesson and you go play a gig with him. I'm just saying it's a way to plug in with the, the, uh, in crowd in your area, take lessons from people. And they're going to love you because you give them 20 bucks or whatever, you know, and you come over to their house and you shoot the breeze and you, you're another human being who, who cares about bluegrass. You know, I like my students because they're the only people I know who give a, give a hoot about bluegrass, you know, 
Um, so anyway, that's it for uh, this episode. Thank you all for listening, and thank you for your support through Patreon. Patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. I do appreciate that so much. Even as small as it is. No, I ain't ragging on the people that do it. I'm only ragging on the people who don't do it, you know? Uh, but it doesn't really doesn't really matter, I guess, in the end. Uh, as as Ed Davis, the very Ed Davis, would say, in 300 years, it ain't going to matter. You know what I mean? It might matter this week because I need to go buy dog food, but 300 years from now, <laughs> me and the dogs ain't going to be around. Somebody else is going to have to deal with that. Anyway, thanks a lot. Also to the visitors over at BradleyLaird.com. All the stuff's up there, you know. Tons of free stuff, tons of videos, tons of books. And uh, I want to thank the guy. I wish I forgot his name already. Jim, I think, who this morning. Uh, you know, I get up in the morning and I'm saying, it's going to be a good day. You know, and I'm feeding the dog and stuff. I check my email. Man, I sold a copy of the Flint Hill Scrolls, one of my prouder creations, one of my worst selling books. And it, it's like, why don't people get it? This thing is great. You know, it's basically Madeline Masterclass for banjo. I had so much fun writing that book. If you play the banjo and you're in that late beginner through intermediate stage, Go check out my book, The Flint Hill Scrolls. It'll open, it'll put a big giant floating light bulb over your head and you will be writing me emails thanking me for what I put in that book. So check out The Flint Hill Scrolls and thank you to the guy, the one guy in the last three months who bought a copy. And it's another download. You just go to bradleylaird.com, stroll around. You'll find it and a lot of other stuff. Thank you very much. Enjoy this beautiful fall weather and I'll talk to you next episode.